If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 13. This is one of my favorite passages in the whole of Scripture. Probably done about a hundred weddings over the last years. And most of them have had these verses read. But these words are about so much more than just the interpersonal relationships that we share. These words of love are the very thing that Jesus instructs us to embody if we want to change the world. And that's what we've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. How do we join the dots? How do we connect the bricks so that the gifts God has given us can be utilized within the body of Christ and through the body of Christ to change the world? I used to spend a lot of time thinking about changing the world, and it just got too big for me. Uh, so I thought, well, let's change a community, and that still was uh, hard to scale. And now I'm just trying to let God change me, and that's hard enough. <laughs> but the way that I get changed, and the community gets changed, and ultimately the world gets changed, is through this incredible power called love. It is love that joins the dots. We were talking about the little bricks last week, remember, right? And, and not all the bricks in life have these handy little kind of dimples and holes on them, right? And so we have to use cement if we put them together. And it's love that holds them together. We've all been given gifts. So we're all part of a body. But the whole thing only works through love. Some of you will remember who James Carvel is. Remember him? One of Clinton's advisors who in the election between, uh, I think it was H. Bush, right, and Clinton, everyone was kind of scrambling to figure out policy. And in a backdoor room in the Clinton campaign, James Carvel was talking through the issues with everybody. And he says... It's the economy, stupid, right? And that soundbite leaked out, and Clinton's platform was built upon the economy. Since then, that little phrase has been used in lots of different contexts, right? Uh, in the next election, uh, both parties will insert a word there and say it's blank, stupid, Often when we're solving problems, we're trying to get to the heart of the issue, we say it's this stupid or it's that stupid. Sometimes we need to be called stupid to realize how uh, clear things are, right? But I, I don't believe God would ever call us stupid. But perhaps in a little back room of heaven, maybe where the angels are listening in to some of the conversations here on earth, right? And we're saying, how do we get something done? How do we make a difference? How do we communicate this message? There's some angel who's scratching his head saying, it's love, stupid. If you want to make a difference in your relationships, in the world, in yourself, in your community, it's love, stupid. I think that's what Paul is trying to communicate in these first few verses of 1 Corinthians 13. He talks through some of the ways that we try and solve problems. 
He talks about some of the things that we so often do, which aren't in themselves bad things, but just without love, they're not good enough and they don't go far enough. It's love, stupid. He says, if I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gang or a clanging cymbal. That's a powerful phrase, that clanging cymbal and noisy gong. You know why? Because we've all been there, right? (laughs) We've all been in conversations where we didn't really have anything to say, but we thought we should say something and we felt we needed to say something, so we say something and it's just a clanging cymbal or a a big dong. Gong, sorry, dong, something else. (laughs) It's love, stupid. He's saying that that you can communicate with all eloquence, but if that communication isn't fueled by love, it's empty. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, another understanding of this word would be preaching. If I understand all mysteries and all have knowledge, but have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The first thing that he's saying is that if we're going to try and impress people with our communication, but we don't have love, that communication is empty. Think about some of the relationships you have, right? There are words exchanged. There is a transaction that takes place. But if there's no love in those words, there's a transaction, but there's not a transformation, right? I'm reading this this fascinating book right now. It's called Don't Split the Difference. It's by a guy called Chris Voss, who's the former head negotiator of the FBI. And he says, when you're resolving conflict, no matter whether it's something at work or in the home or with uh, the world's most wanted terrorist, he says, one of the things that you have to do, first of all, is you have to choose your tone. He says, as a negotiator, there are, there are three tones that I choose. He says, sometimes I need to learn to smile with my voice. Sometimes I need to use a a downward inflection, which signifies me kind of coming down. He says, but most of the time, when I'm negotiating, I have to use my FM DJ radio voice. Think Delilah. (laughs) Right? You ever listen to Delilah? Yeah, that was very brave of you to admit that. <laughs> but you know her tone, right? She's got this, this soft voice, and there's something about a, a soft voice that communicates love. Paul is saying that if we want to communicate effectively, we must do so with love for one that we're communicating with in mind. Because if we're just communicating, then it's very easy for us to be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So if I have knowledge, all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not love, then I am nothing. 
If I communicate but don't have love, I'm wasting my time. He's saying if I pretend to have all wisdom and all knowledge, if I'm trying to impress people by how smart I am, or what I can do, if I'm trying to push myself to the front of the line but don't have love, then I'm wasting my time. He says it's love, stupid. You're trying to impress someone with how smart you are. It just doesn't work if that's for for selfish, egotistical benefits. It's when knowledge and wisdom are used for love that they really take on a whole new depth. Talks about sacrifice. And he gives two examples of it. If I give away all my possessions, everything I have, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You ever met those people who, who try and kind of uh, impress you by how much of a sacrifice they're making? Or, or how hard they're trying? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm so busy, but I can do it. <coughs> Look what I gave. Look, look what I did. And it's almost like they're, they're boasting in their sacrifice. Whenever we make a sacrifice for selfish reasons, it cheapens the sacrifice we're making, right? right. And what Paul is saying is it's love, stupid. <laughs> if you want to impress someone but have not love, It's all empty. If you want to communicate or or show off your knowledge or sacrifice, if you don't have love as the foundation, that stuff is empty. How do we join the dots? How do we make a difference? How do we change the world? How do we change our world? It's love, stupid. Sometimes we need to remember of that. None of us like being called stupid. But when you look at the way we try to fix things without love, it is actually stupid. It's love, stupid. And I imagine his readers are kind of scratching their head about this. What, 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 what do you mean? I communicate well. I'm, I'm pretty wise. God has given some wisdom. I make sacrifices. We've been told to do that. Well, what do you mean that's, that's worthless? And Paul says, let me tell you about this love. And honestly, I think there are many in this world who need to understand this love. In the Greek language, there were four words that they used for love. We just have one. And because of that, I think our definition of love has defaulted to the lowest common denominator. The Greeks talked about a a brotherly love. They talked about an affectionate love. They talked about a sexual love. And then there's this word agape, which talks about a sacrificial covenant love directly from heaven to us. And it's almost like Paul is saying, yeah, you guys know these other kind of loves, but there's a different love that's so much greater. Tracy and I were at a wedding earlier in the year that I presided over. And at the end, they gave out these little, um, what were they, like suitcase tags or something? 
and their relationship had had kind of a rocky road to get to the altar. And on the, on the wristbands, it said, love wins. And I love that because love does win. Three or four months later, this couple was separated. They got back together and off and on and off and off and off again. And I'm thinking, hey, is, is love going to win? The only love that ultimately wins is the agape love of God. The affections that we have will splinter. The brotherly relationships that we have can go wrong. That eros kind of love can come with all kinds of problems, right? But agape, that's something that's above and beyond. It's all about love, stupid, but it's not these lesser loves. It's this agape love. And Paul goes on to talk about what this agape love looks like. And honestly, as we read this passage, I cannot help but realize how far away I am from this agape love. It says, love is patient. It's a special kind of patience here. It's not about the patience with circumstances or situations, but it's about a patience with people. Saying, if you want to love, you have to understand patience. Now, the thing that I've been reading in this, 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 this book I'm looking at is generally, in any kind of negotiation, the first person to unintentionally become angry always loses. As soon as we throw away patience, we throw away so much. How do we receive patience? I know of only one way, and that's to look to our God who is patient with us and defines patience as long-suffering. As I look at my relationship with God, there's a lot of long-suffering as He looks down upon me. As I consider that and His faithfulness, then it becomes easier for me to be patient with others, right? This agape that transcends is patient. It is kind. There should be no such thing as an unkind Christian. It's one of the greatest uh, sadnesses. Uh, is that a word, sadnesses? Sure. It is now. Claimed it. Copyright. <laughs> One of the greatest sadnesses of our day that the church is often uh, teaching Christian truths without any kindness. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It doesn't get jealous. It doesn't claim for its own. Love is not boastful. There's this kind of um, self-effacing quality about love, right? L love doesn't need anything in return. Love doesn't need to be celebrated because receiving love is celebration enough. Love is not arrogant. 
It it runs away from any sense of of self-importance. You know, there there are lots of times, maybe it's true for you, when maybe someone will say something and you like what they said about you and it made you feel good and something like that. So oh, that's, that's good. Give me a, a little bit more of that affirmation. But love just kind of brushes that, that aside because it doesn't want to become arrogant. Love does not feed the ego. Love is not rude. Lined up in this uh, passage is the word grace. Charis is its original form. This word grace, this word charis also means charm. There is something so charming about this love, so, so respectful, so dignified, so polite, so other-centered. It is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. The idea behind this little picture is of an accounting ledger. And again, right, how often in relationships do we do that? We kind of make a note of uh, things that people have done wrong and we say, oh, you know, I've forgiven, I've, I've forgotten, but it's still there on the list. Forgiveness is about erasing that wrong off the ledger, right? And there's something about love that has this glorious trait of forgetting. Someone texted me um, uh, a few few months ago. They sent me this email, really long uh, email, just very, very apologetic about all the things that they had done wrong to me over the years. And I read it and I thought, what on earth are you talking about? (laughs) I knew nothing of this. I had no idea that you'd offended me. (laughs) Part of that could be age, but I would like to think that part of that is holy as well. (laughs) Right? Because love keeps no record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is this this strand that strengthens all our relationships, right? It's an otherworldly love that stands tall among the lesser loves that our world craves after. Agape wins. It's love. It's love. It's love. It's love. Verse 8. Not only is this love the strand that strengthens, but it's the promise that always prevails. This is what he says in verse 8. Love never ends. If it ends, it wasn't love. You okay there, Fred? (laughs) Shut up. 
Ferrari. That sounds like a motorbike or something. Ferrari. Ferrari. <laughs> That's love. <laughs> That's love. <laughs> love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. What he's saying? There is something permanent about this love. There is a permanency to this agape love that changes us and pulls us together and that we get to dispense in this world that does not have an expiration date on. Businesses come and go. Governments rise and fall. But the church has been strong for 2,000 years. Is it because we're a great organization? No. Is it because we've got all our stuff together? No. It's because we have the permanency of love within us. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put childish things aside. For we, now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Not only is Paul talking about the permanency of love, but he's talking about the completeness of love as well. You know, in, in these, these days, um, mirrors weren't as developed as they are today. The modern mirror, as we know it, little history fact, only came around about in the 13th century. But beforehand, in Jesus' day, when Paul's talking about a mirror here, he was talking about the reflection you would get off a metal mirror. Have you ever kind of just walked by some metal and looked at yourself? in it, you know, just to do your hair or whatever. It's not a great reflection, is it? <laughs> Some of us, that's a good thing. <laughs> right? But, but he's saying we're, we're looking into a metal mirror. We're not seeing clearly this power of love. It's not complete yet. But there is a day coming when we will see face to face that picture of love and we will get it and we will understand it and we will want more of it and we will live in it. He's talking about the completeness of love. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three remain. Faith and hope and love. But the greatest of these is love. He's talking about the permanency of love and the completeness of love. But he's also talking about the supremacy of love. Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Man, I, I, I would love more faith in my life. That's the deal, right? That's what Jesus said. You need faith to know me. But there's something greater than faith. 
He says, hope, that's a pretty powerful force, and we know that. Well, we see it all over the place where just a little spark of hope can change all kinds of things. But he says love is, is greater than both of those two things. He's talking about the supremacy of love. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, he's talking about the gifts that God has given. He's talking about the body and how we use our gifts to make a difference. But he says you're not going to make a difference unless you can love with this otherworldly love that comes directly from heaven. Some of us need to hear today, it's love, stupid. <laughs> quit, quit trying to make things happen with your, your eloquent words or your superior wisdom or your huge sacrifices because it's love that will change. It is love that is the strand that strengthens and it is love that provides the promise that prevails. On Friday, Thursday afternoon, I was in a Bible study with some, some guys, and we've kind of been working our way through this book um, by Bob Goff. Bob's a, a, a lawyer, and he's a kind of um, extravagant, risk-taking entrepreneur. He tells the story of how some of his buddies and he entered a yacht race from L.A. to Hawaii. It's like a, a, a week-long thing. George, you may know of this. You heard of it? Transact. What's it called? The Transact. The Transact. Big deal, right? And um, none of them kind of knew how to uh, navigate too well. Um, so they recruited a navigator who used to be in the, the Navy. Two days before they set off, the navigator bails. And so Bob says, how hard can this be? And he gets a few textbooks and he throws them on the, the boat. And he learns to navigate in his own unique way. And the way that he does it, and George, you'll be able to understand this better than I am, probably not telling the story right, is that, that as he's traveling from L.A. to Hawaii and getting hopelessly lost on the way until he figures out the principle of fixed points, right? Where you find something that you know to be true, that gives you a clear picture of where you are, but then you have to find something else that you know to be sure, and you kind of put yourself in the middle of it. Is that a layman's kind of understanding? You can correct me later. Thank you for your grace. <laughs> but I love that idea of having fixed points. And we were talking about, uh, you know, what are some of the fixed points in your life that you can come back to when you get lost? <clears throat> we went around the table and some of the guys said, well, um, you know, for me, as long as I got some money in my bank account, I'll be all right. Uh, another said, um, hey, my parents have been a fixed point in my life. Well, whenever I'm getting lost, I can turn to them. Another guy said, well, uh, this may sound a little bit weird, but my sense of discipline. So that, that's a big thing for me. If I, I, I lose my discipline, if I lose my, my, my routine, then I kind of get lost a little bit. Then one guy said, 
testosterone-fueled athlete with tears in his eyes. I don't know a day in my life when I haven't known that God is with me. When, when everything else was going south, I haven't known that I was loved. And God's love is a fixed point in my life. And I just looked at him and said, Amen. Because that's exactly what Paul is talking about, right? It's all about love. Everything rises and falls on our ability to love. Because love is the strand that sustains and love is the promise that prevailed. And in a world where everything else will let us down, the only fixed point for us to get where we need to go is this agape love of God. Paul says you've been given a gift. You've got to use it through the body into the world. But all that stuff is nothing without this great and beautiful and glorious and transcendent and transforming and forgiving and redeeming and restoring love of God.